0: So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would please speak to us through your word, that we can follow you more, love you more, experience more of you in our lives. We ask this in your name, Jesus, amen. Well, hello. Good to see all of you. If you're still looking for a seat, there are some up here. If you don't mind being close to the preacher, um, you can come up here. I want to say hello to all of you. Good to see you all back from the summer. Those of you watching at home, online, or at our 11 o'clock service, our middle schoolers, our high schoolers, great to see uh, all of you here. Uh, The story we just read is about four teenagers who show us what true courage looks like, both in good times, because you need courage then too, but also in turbulent times. So let me just kind of start with a question, do you think we are living in turbulent times right now? Yeah, that's kind of the other, the other uh, service thought that we were living in tur- turbulent times as well. I mean, the last 10 years, right, a bit of a ride. We had the Great Recession, racism, divisive and angry elections. This week, hurricanes, fires, earthquakes, right? Like even the weather this summer seemed apocalyptic, right? Like when I was uh, writing this sermon on Tuesday, I was just sweating because it was so hot. I looked out the window and the sun was this eerie orange color because of all the smoke and there was ash falling on the ground. And I just thought, hot and smoky, what does that remind me of? I know, hell. (laughs) Turbulent times. Years ago my wife and I uh, were in Italy and we took a ferry to the island of Capri and you stood on the ferry the whole time and they crammed us together so everyone was pressed up against everyone else, no personal space. It was super hot, the windows were closed so there was no fresh air, just the smell of diesel exhaust and the ocean was turbulent so the boat was going up and down, up and down and then it happened. One person got sick and it created a domino effect, right? Like the next person and then the next person. and Sort of like in a football game when they do the wave, kind of only like less cool than that. Maybe because of what's in the news or what's going on in your personal life, you feel like you are that boat in turbulent seas. Well, this fall we're going to be doing a sermon series on the book of Daniel, which is all about true courage in turbulent times. As well as, how do we live as people of God in a culture that is indifferent to or even hostile to God? And next week, we're going to do a more in-depth look at this first chapter, Uh, but today I want to look at it kind of as an overview for the whole book of Daniel. Now, the background for this is that for centuries, God had criticized Israel for two things. Idolatry, worshiping foreign gods first, and then second, the second thing, God harshly criticized Israel for their failure to care for immigrants, foreigners, the poor, and the marginalized. And he does this not just in a few places, but over and over and over again. And because it is a big theme in scripture, even a little bit in Daniel today, and because immigration is in the news, let me just do a little bit of a digression here, just briefly comment, okay? There is, because I don't want an elephant in the room. There's a lot of room for debate in the, intellect, in the immigration thing, and, and there are good people on all sides, and, and I don't know the answers. But I know one thing is crystal clear. Scripture repeatedly insists that God's people are called to care for foreigners and immigrants who are here. Personally, I don't think that would include sending people back who came here as kids. I don't think that lines up with Scripture. So I'm hoping Congress can find good resolution to that. But whatever the policy, I guess to get increasingly concerned as Christians, whatever the policy, whatever the issue, can we be led by what Scripture says, not what Democrats or Republicans say? Can we focus in on on Scripture? And now that I have delighted some of you and irritated the rest, um, I'll keep going. For centuries, God warned Israel about these things. Centuries, which shows how patient he was. But finally he said, okay, look, if the only way to change you is if something drastic happens, well then so be it. So Israel, I am taking the land away from you. You don't get to be a nation anymore. And the Babylonian Empire conquered Jerusalem, burned the temple to the ground, and then took thousands of Jews into exile, into Babylon, which is kind of roughly modern day Iraq, thousands of Jews into exile. And the teenagers we just read about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these are some of those exiles. Okay, that's the background. So let's pick it up in the text, okay? After they've been carried into exile, then the king ordered to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the nobility. Young men, and the Hebrew word there is, means really young. So we're talking 15, 16 years old. Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. So these are just kind of ordinary teenagers who had everything going for them. They're good looking, which always helps, right? They came from wealthy families, they're smart, right? Good at school, destined for the best colleges, the best jobs and then this disaster comes and their whole future is stolen from them. Their parents are dead, their city destroyed, they are refugees, foreigners in an enemy nation, they don't speak the language and they would have been despised for their race and for their religion. And in the face of that, they show us four things about true courage, what it is. Four things, all beginning with the letter R. And the first is this. True courage runs to the challenge. Sometimes I can shrink back from a challenge, but true courage runs toward the challenge. These teens don't get paralyzed. For years, our youngest daughter wanted to get a dog, and she would ask and ask and drop not-so-subtle hints. Like if we dropped some food on the floor, she'd say, too bad we don't have a dog to clean that up guess I'll just do it myself, right? But my wife and I knew that if we got a dog, all the work would fall on us. So we kept saying no. So we came up with a brilliant solution. And by we, I mean my wife, dog sitting. So the way we get our, some of our clients is kind of a little weird. When my wife, is, my wife is driving around and she sees someone walking a dog that she likes, she stops the car, runs over to the people and says, do you need a dog sitter? We'll do it. And shockingly, they all say yes. Right, like, here, strange stalker lady, take my dog for a week. That is how desperate people are for dog sitters, right? Well, after the second or third time of dog sitting, our daughter said, it's time for the dogs to go home now. I'm tired of them. I rest my case about pets, right? Daniel and his friends run to the challenge the way my wife runs to people and their dogs. They just, they don't hesitate. The text says that these four teenagers were taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. That would have included Babylonian religion. Their names are changed to Babylonian names. We'll talk about that next week. It is a complete cultural reprogramming designed to strip them of their Hebrew culture and religion and make them Babylonians instead, down even to what they eat. It says the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Okay, their country is gone. They're being brainwashed. Their future stolen. But rather than wring their hands in despair, they see this as an opportunity to display God's power. They run toward the challenge. Then the official says, look, you have to eat the king's food, right? They say we're not, Daniel says not going to eat the king's food. The official says, you got to eat the king's food because if the king sees you looking skinnier than everyone else, he's going to kill me instead. And then Daniel doubles down on God and says, test your servants for 10 days. That's how confident he is in God. Test your servants. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the other young men who eat the royal food. Daniel runs to the challenge, takes a risk. He doesn't play it safe. See, the devil doesn't try to make us bad so much as he tries to make us safe. Keep us from taking risks. Keep us from doubling down on God and relying on God. He doesn't try to make us bad. The devil tries to make us safe. Daniel and his friends don't play it safe. They run to the challenge trusting only in the power of God. Not going to eat that food. And then what happens? The text says at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. See, if we shrink back in fear, that focuses us on the problem, and that's just depressing. But when we run toward the problem, we're solution-focused, and that gives us hope. My wife loves to read disaster books, shipwrecks, plane crashes, that sort of thing. And one of the things they all say is that, that the people who focus on helping others survive better than people who don't because they're running to the challenge. They're focused on fixing it, not on the problem, and that brings hope. Tomorrow, King 5 News is gonna be here doing a story on us because of all the earthquake prep we did last year, we are now equipped to be a shelter in case of an earthquake or a flood or winds or whatever. We can be a shelter. We got cots, we got, we, we got supplies, all of that, because as a church, we want to run toward the problems in the world, not isolate ourselves from the problems in the world. Run to the challenge. Second, run without regret. Run without regret. Daniel and friends had their whole future stolen. And the appropriate response to that is lament. We have to lament and mourn the pain of the past or we can't move forward. Right? And the Israelites did that. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations, Lamenting the Destruction of Jerusalem. But we can't get stuck there either. Because if we get stuck there, then we're not moving forward. There comes a time we've got to stop lamenting, stop regretting, and move forward. I've quoted a therapist in our church on a couple of occasions who says to her clients, you can have a better future, but you have to let go of trying to have a better past. You can have a better future, but you've got to let go of trying to have a better past. The parent who didn't give you what you needed, unfair treatment you got in that job, the opportunities you missed, the church that wounded you, that needs to be lamented and grieved, but you can't live in regret. Some people, for instance, they get hurt in a relationship and say, that's it, I'm never going to open myself up again. And they get stuck in the past. The four teenagers in this story, they don't waste time on regret. Not, they don't have any, if only this hadn't happened, if only this had happened instead. They lament and then they run without regret. Third, run without retreat. Don't back down. Daniel and his friends show us how to live as people of God in a culture that is indifferent to or even hates God, And they do it in an interesting way, and you see it in this text, they don't criticize Babylonian culture, your stupid Babylonian food, we're not going to eat your Babylonian food. They, They don't do that, right? In fact, they go a long way to accommodate the culture, but neither do they conform to the culture. They found a third way, right? And they did not retreat from their faith, and we'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead. Run to the challenge, run without regret, run without retreat, and finally, run without resources. The only resource these four relied on was God and God alone. And that is what is at stake, finally, in this business about not eating the king's food. Like, what is that about? Why, you know, why do they let their names be changed, but they draw the line, I'm not going to eat the king's food. It was probably really good. I probably would have eaten it, right? But wh- what's, what's going on there? Some, some commentators say, well, it's probably because it wasn't prepared in a kosher way, according to Jewish custom. Maybe that's part of it, but I think a deeper reading of the text shows that there are two things involved in not eating the king's food. It's about two things. And the first is, who or what are they relying on? It says the king assigned them a daily amount of food from the king's table. Okay, what you got to understand here, the king is not like being nice to them, okay? By giving them fancy food as a kind of consolation prize, right? Sorry I burned your city to the ground and killed everyone you know, but here's a nice chocolate torte with raspberry ganache. You know, that should take some of the sting out of it, right? That's not what's going on here, right? That's not what's happening here. No, he wants to make them completely dependent on him for everything so he can control you. That's why it's a daily amount, so that they have to come to him and depend on him constantly. See, the king understands whatever provides for you, controls you. Whatever provides for you, controls you. Back in the 80s, Nicolae Ceausescu uh, was dictator of Romania, and he controlled everything. And every once in a while, he would turn the electricity off in the city just to remind the people that he could. Just as a way of saying, get out of line and I'll stop providing for you. Your provider controls you. So for instance, if we look to school or our jobs for our security, our meaning and our worth, it controls us. Now it's good to like our jobs, good to like school, God uses us in those. But we can't let them be our ultimate provider because then they control us and they'll let us down. So for instance, one day, and I hope it's far away, but one day I won't have this job anymore. So if that is my ultimate source of security, meaning, worth, then I'm in trouble. I remember once talking to a retired pastor who said the first Sunday after he retired was really, really difficult. He said every Sunday I used to preach to a thousand people who were carefully listening to my words. But that first Sunday of retirement was just me and my wife at breakfast and she didn't want to hear a thing I had to say. <laughs> I didn't have the heart to tell him that some of the people in his church weren't listening either. Right. What we preachers think looks like you guys looking, paying attention, may really just be you thinking, do I want chocolate cake or salted caramel for dessert, right? Who provides for you? That's the thing that controls you. What provides our security, our sense of self-worth? These four teenagers didn't rely on money, the king's favor. The only resource was God, which made them brave and unafraid, even of a tyrant king. Because even if he kills them, they know their ultimate future is with God in a remade earth where there is no more pain and no more suffering. So they were free from the king's control. Who or what is your provider? That's the boss of you. The second issue at stake in in not eating the king's food is a question of appetite. Are they gaining an appetite for Babylonian culture or for the things of God? See, the king wants to feed them things that will give them a taste and appetite for Babylonian culture. They'll have the great food. They'll have some privilege. They'll be in the palace. They'll be close to power. And pretty soon they're going to start to say, you know, this exile thing's not so bad. Food, money, comfort, reputation, achievement, all of those are good things. But if we get too attached to them, they dull our appetite for the things of God, the better things of God, like meaningful relationships, connection to God, purpose and passion. See, the devil rarely tempts us to do something bad. He's too smart for that. He tempts us to become overly attached to something that is good. It's kind of like me and chocolate chip cookies, I can eat a dozen at a time, literally. I can sit down and eat a dozen chocolate chip cookies, I just put them all in my hand. My wife says I take an octave at a time, right? Just like eight, nine, ten cookies, right? It's interesting. I'm fine if I don't have any chocolate chip cookies, I don't crave them, but if I have so much as one, I can't stop. So I can have none or two dozen. One doesn't seem to be an option, right? And you know, someone will make cookies and the next day there'll be like only a few left and my kids are like, Dad! They've started to hide them from me. which that's not nice. That's too much. Too much of a good thing. Too much of a good thing. Bad for my health. Bad for my kids, right? Daniel and his friends opt for vegetables instead of the king's food. And the Hebrew word here for vegetables really means cereal or grain. So think kind of like oatmeal or porridge, right? They do that as a way of lessening their appetite for Babylonian culture and increasing their appetite for the things of God. And what did they get for eating porridge? Which sounds miserable to us, right? Like, they must have been miserable. That sounds terrible, right? Well, they got a couple of things. For starters, radical freedom, unafraid even of a tyrant king, proof that God exists and is with them. They got to see miracles because the more we rely on Jesus, the more miracles we tend to see. They got deep camaraderie and community with each other. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead, they changed their culture for the better, and they're only 15. They got adventure, meaning purpose. I could eat porridge for that. Now, that doesn't mean I'm telling you to go out and have porridge for brunch, right? Like, that's not the takeaway of this sermon. But metaphorically speaking, here's what it comes down to. You are what you eat. You are what you consume. Consume the culture, you're the culture. Consume more about Jesus, you become more like Jesus. God says to us, you are more loved than you can ever imagine, but keep feasting at the table of what our world offers and not what I offer, and you're going to starve to death because it's like cookies. They taste good, but empty calories, no nutritional value. So the, as the psalmist says, let's taste and see that the Lord is good and experience his love. And that thing there, the experience of his love, that's the key. That's the most important thing. Because see, what made Daniel and friends so brave wasn't that they tried harder, though I'm sure they tried. Really, ultimately, it was that they had had an experience of God. God's love makes us brave. So are you experiencing God's love? Because if you're like me, you're, you're really good at knowing things about Jesus, but maybe not so good at knowing Jesus himself. So are you experiencing God's love? And there's lots of ways to do that. First way to experience God's love, look at Jesus. He is God's love incarnate. God in human form. Come to find us when we ran away from him. That's how much he loves us. Worship and music reminds us of God. You know, God designed us so that music helps us to feel something. That's why what we do here matters. Scripture reminds us of God. Prayer, when we listen for those thoughts that aren't our own. And then reminders God gives us. I'm convinced God gives us reminders every week that he's there. Little reminders. In this text, it says that God caused the officials to show favor and compassion to Daniel. A few verses later, it says, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding. See, God is giving them things. These little reminders that he was with them in turbulent times causing them to find favor with the officials, giving them gifts that help them survive in that culture. It's not some giant miracle, just little reminders that God is there. Maybe it's something someone says to you, a lyric in a song, something that unexpectedly turns out good. Just a reminder of God's love because God's love makes us brave. So, how about you? Whether things are going well or you're facing turbulent times, how are you doing for courage these days? What challenge do you need to run to and run without regret, run without retreat, and run with no reserve other than Jesus? That's the question. Now, here's your homework. Ask Jesus to help you experience his love and then look for the reminders he gives you this week. Keep your eyes open for them because it's his love that makes us brave. Saw a great example of this uh, this week. Some of you have probably seen this as well. Took place in a shelter in, in Houston where people were staying, evacuees were staying because they'd been driven from their homes by Hurricane Harvey. So they were staying in this shelter because of the hurricane, lots of loss, lots of pain, right? But then a woman named Victoria White and a man named Marquis Taylor stood up and started singing a full-on Jesus-loving gospel song in the, this, in the middle of this shelter with all of these hurricane evacuees, and it looked like this. Yeah. It made all the news shows, and one of the shows was CNN, where the reporter asked them why they did that, and Marquis said, well, we're Christians, and, and Jesus gives us a duty to love everyone, no matter their race, no matter their occupation, just love, period. I mean, it's like He dropped the Jesus bomb on national TV, right? Like, and no one freaked out, because he did it so graciously, and then the reporter said this to Victoria. Victoria, I've seen the video, oh. I love it, but you know what? It's not enough. It's not enough. I need, (laughs) I need more. I need more. It is still too dark out there. It is still too gray. There is still too much unknown. We must feed the hope. Give me something. Give me something. What do you have for me? (laughs) Um, Okay, I can do a little bit of king of my heart. Stephanie Gretzinger, German. Whatever you feel. And it says, Okay. Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I And amen for that. Look at the people behind you. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? That, my first thought was, how do we hire her? Like, I, 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 I want her in our band, man. Um, there's lots to lament and grieve. Hurricanes are serious business, right? But in the middle of that, Victoria and Marquis aren't paralyzed with fear. They are running to the challenge without regret, without retreat, and with no other resource than Jesus. Running with a full-on, I ain't going to let no hurricane steal my joy, Jesus' power in their soul. In the face of the storm, she sang and proclaimed Jesus' victory no matter what happens, and helped everyone in that shelter experience God's love, which makes us brave. So what are you facing? Relationship challenge, sing to the storm. School problems, sing to the storm. Financial issues, sing to the storm. Fears about our country, career problems, loneliness, health issues. Sing Jesus' love. Sing Jesus' hope. Sing Jesus' victory. Sing Jesus' power over that storm. Because the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. And I love what that reporter said to Victoria. I need more. It's still too dark. I need more. So let that be our prayer this week. Jesus, I need more of you more of your love, more of your hope, more of your joy, so I can run without regret, without retreat, and with no other resource than you, Jesus, because you are all I need. So Jesus, thank you for that and the power you give us. God, we ask that you would fill us with your hope, with your love, with your power, to help us be your people and run toward the challenge with your healing. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.